Welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Neil Desai, co-founder and CEO of Lease to Own Startup Caffeine. Neil, it's actually been nearly exactly a year since the last time we spoke, uh, and I believe you have some exciting news to share with us. I do, but first of all, thank you so much for having me back. Uh, the year really flew by, and I really enjoyed our prior conversation. I'm looking forward to the time we have today. Um, and I do appreciate your allowing me to share some great news. So I will uh, I'll begin with that. You know, Caffeine has raised an additional $12.6 million in equity financing as an extension of our Series B last year. And that brings our total Series B raised to just under $31 million. So we're, we're pretty proud of that. Well, and in addition to the extension of the Series B, and this is certainly, you know, still a challenging operating environment, you also hit a milestone of over $100 million in financing extended to your customers and plan to keep growing that. Can you tell a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about what it was like to raise capital in the current environment? I mean, particularly for a lending business catering to customers who are maybe non-prime, you know, the the appetite for for these kinds of companies at least in my experience, can often be somewhat cyclical. Yeah, absolutely. The $100 million in total financing was a huge milestone for us. Um, and again, that's financing towards our end consumers. You know, we are not the kind of company that celebrates very often. You know, there's no there's no ping pong tables in our office. We don't have that kind of culture. But um, we did stop to really acknowledge um, in a meaningful way, company-wide, that milestone. And the reason we did that is because you have to keep in mind that most of our employees do not face our merchants and they don't face our consumers. And so oftentimes it is difficult to really understand the impact that our business is having on consumers and the amount of positive you know, value creation we're creating across the ecosystem. Stopping every once in a while to acknowledge the scale at which we're operating is a really important thing. And you know, I'm not going to be too specific, but I can tell you that we hit that number pretty early this year and our growth has accelerated materially since then. And so we're looking forward to celebrating similar milestones uh, on a more frequent cadence going forward. That's a good point. I mean, you know, regardless of what function you hold in in an organization, whether it's engineering or product management or marketing, which is what I used to do, um, there is something rewarding about understanding like what the tangible benefit to the the end user of your product is. And I guess I didn't stop and think about with the distribution model you have, right? So through merchants, that that is perhaps a little little less visible. I mean, you know, I'm sure we talked last time about um, you know, the years I spent in the small dollar space and and you know, setting aside any uh feelings about that. That specific product category, you know, frequently the people who needed to borrow small amounts of money were extremely grateful that they had had the ability to do that, um, and particularly from companies that treated them um, humanely, ethically, with dignity. And so, you know, I, I think that that this is a really important, um, you know, service to offer in a. Uh, you know, within the guardrails of of um, you know what's been established to regulate it, I, I think that's right. And you know, oftentimes, I will speak about the individual dollar amounts that we extend, and what is what is great about that hundred million dollar number is that it acknowledges that caffeine is not doing this on a onesie twosie basis anymore. It is a platform, and all of the effort 
and teamwork that it takes to create a platform like that to be able to extend you know what we think is a great service at scale is is very different from doing this um you know on a one off basis and and that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty big milestone for us i do want to i do want to talk about the capital raising also because you mentioned that and and i will say that you know capital raising is never easy but this is a particularly challenging market and i think it's a function of you know what we're seeing from a macro perspective with rates if we think about what the market looked like 3 years ago you know our, our our audience here your audience here the people that we interact most days are pretty equity focused but the world is not equity focused the world from a capital allocation standpoint thinks about multiple capital markets instruments uh, including debt and including fixed income and annuity like investments and when rates were zero all of that capital was flooding into the equity markets and so entrepreneurs had a lot of leverage now with risk free rates over 5% some of that leverage has disappeared and as a result i think the market is harder and so you're not just competing for capital with other entrepreneurs you're competing for capital with uh fixed income instruments that in prior years were never really on the menu and so you have to try a little bit harder and the messaging has to acknowledge the macro environment and so i, I have a couple of just principles that we followed in this round that you know proved uh useful you know the first one is to really acknowledge what investors downside might be if they write that check to you mm -hmm. um make sure you understand it well enough to mitigate it make sure you have a plan and and part of that plan is running a lean business and being focused on margin and you want to be three steps ahead of where the macro is because the investors actually care in a way that they didn't in prior years you know the second thing i think is to be realistic about painting the upside if you think you're a 5 billion dollar business some someday you should say you're a 5 5 billion dollar business someday don't start throwing numbers around like 100 billion because it's just not credible anymore and it makes you know makes you sound inauthentic um you know in a related related point you want to be specific and clear about your strategy and present yourself as a pretty grounded steward of capital rather than a shoot the lights out risk taker and and i think the final point that i would um want to highlight is you know, there, there's no sense in this market of, you know, boiling the entire ocean one inch deep. I, I think you want to really be specific about who you go after and go really narrow, but really deep. Uh, there is a pretty small chance that somebody is going to make their first investment in their sector with you in this market in 2023. So if they haven't done it before, there's probably no point in going after them. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all very, you know, very great, very valid points. You know, the the stat that was always floating around, whatever, one or two years ago, was that like one out of every five dollars was being invested in a fintech company. You know, and I think uh, probably not too controversial, maybe to say in retrospect that maybe that prop, you know, maybe that wasn't the be wasn't the best idea in the sense of, uh, on the one hand. You know, VCs who maybe didn't specialize in fintech or didn't have a lot of experience uh, investing in the space, and, and particularly for the business you're in, which is essentially a lending business or a credit risk business. You know, the the dynamics, the business model, the economics are quite different than than other industries, whether it's consumer internet or SaaS or whatever. And then on the flip side, and you also sort of alluded to this. You know, with the feeling of almost, you know, unlimited capital, or that it was very easy to raise rounds, 
a lack of discipline on the operating side, right? Those the the ping pong tables and the pour over coffees and the the team building trips to Costa Rica. Um, so it, it, you know, I think for people who entered the space and and maybe their first startup or their first company was in you know 2021, you know that was not a normal operating environment. And and I think on both sides, on the startup operating side and on the VC side. It, it's probably a good thing that we're returning to something, you know, more closely resembling normal with a little bit more discipline. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the the Fed's interest rate policy created so many distortions across the market, you know, one of which, as you correctly point out, was tremendous you know, number of dollars into fintech. And I think it's important to separate what is actually an amazing picture for fintech to create value uh, over the next decade or multiple decades. I, I think that part's real, right? I think this is a sector that has uh, real tailwinds behind it and has the potential to do a lot of amazing things. But the speed and velocity of the capital that came in, I think was um, disorienting for a lot of market participants and created unrealistic expectations and in, in some cases, maybe even delusions as to what was possible on what timeline. And a little bit of a more sober outlook, I think, is is warranted. And I think you'll still see tons of great companies that are, you know, less than five years old continue to scale like we are. And then companies that are being started today, I think, have a have a ton of room to run as long as the expectations are realistic. Um, something I want to follow up on. You mentioned rates, which have only gone up since the last time we spoke. Uh, on the other hand, credit performance, particularly in sort of subprime products, you know, I would say has continued to normalize. You've seen rising delinquency rates, lenders beginning to tighten underwriting criteria. Um, and now, finally, uh, federal student loan repayments are kicking in, and that's estimated to cost a typical borrower about 200 to 300 bucks a month out of out of their budget. You know, how have you seen these factors sort of play out in caffeine's business? So, I mean, you mentioned the the 100 million of financing extended, which is a huge milestone. Um, but you know, getting the money back is always the hard part, right? In, indeed, <laughs> it, it is. It is the important part. Um, so, you know, I, I would sort of separate what we know about the consumer from what we know about the businesses that are serving the segment, right? And on the consumer side, I think you pointed to a lot of great data points. Interest rates are higher, which means that the cost of credit is higher and there's just less credit available. Uh, student loan repayments are starting up again, and that's stressing an already thinning balance sheet from you know the consumer perspective. And then we see that the impacts of this are really no longer theoretical, right? We are seeing um, cracks visible in the delinquency data on the unsecured credit side and even in secured credit like auto. So, you know, the net of all of this, I think, is unequivocally negative for the consumer. That being said, I don't think that means that all businesses will suffer. So when you think about businesses that are lifestyle businesses like travel or entertainment or discretionary retail spend, I think they're going to feel the squeeze a lot more than sectors that have relatively inelastic demand like tire or consumer staples. I think those companies will do just fine. Companies that have business models that are differentiated, that provide real value to consumers, uh, will do okay. But of course, they will need to make adjustments. I wish this weren't the case, but I think the impact on consumers is going to be more severe than the impact on some of the businesses in certain categories that serve those consumers. And 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what that means specifically for caffeine. You know, caffeine has to run a lower growth rate than we normally would. So we're still growing and we're growing quickly, but we're not growing at the rates that companies were growing in 2020, 2021, and early 2022. That means that we are not able to serve as many consumers as we would like. Our natural growth rate in a market without all of these macro factors would be higher, right? Um, being careful for us means running a tighter credit box. That means fewer consumers will get approved. It means fewer retailers will be our retail partners. And that and that sucks, but it's just what we have to do in this environment. Um, there are some pretty cool mitigants, though. I would say the the biggest one is is the trade down effect, which I think we we touched on last time we spoke. Last time we spoke, it was largely theoretical. Now we're seeing it, right? And the trade down effect for you know your listeners who aren't familiar with it is just the idea that as market conditions tighten and traditional credit becomes less available, the marginal consumer that would have been approved by a prime financing solution has to seek out other financing solutions like caffeines. And so we're actually seeing a huge rise in our average FICO. It's up by about 30 points over the last year. And so we're seeing the best consumer credit that we've ever seen, which is again, good for our business, but ultimately, you know, unfortunate for the consumers that, you know, uh, no longer can qualify. Um, and the, you know, the final thing that we're seeing is, is again, just something that we take very seriously. That is, um, we expect our consumers to require some use of that flexible financing that we referenced earlier. Remember that our, our program has a, as a return option whereby consumers can essentially terminate their agreements with, with no, you know, adverse consequences. And so we're starting to gear up our, our servicing centers in anticipation that more consumers will need to exercise that option as we head into the next year. I mean, the, the, the trade-down effect is really interesting. And I imagine, you know, people who operate primarily in the prime, super prime space, you know, probably don't think too much about it, but uh, particularly because we haven't been in a climate with elevated inflation and higher rates in, in a long time. So, I mean, if I think of some of the sort of, call it like near prime uh, consumer lending products, whether it's, you know, revolving or, or a BNPL type facility, you know, depending on the state and and the structure of the product, once you're hitting, you know, 30 or certainly a max of 36% APR, they're probably not either able or willing to raise rates above that. So for that sort of marginal consumer, you know, if you can no longer price for the risk either associated with that, you know, applicant, you know, and or the the increase in the underlying cost of funds, you just can't approve that person anymore, right? And so, to your point, for that that potential borrower applicant, you know, perhaps it's it's not the greatest outcome, but there are other solutions available. From your standpoint, as a business, it sounds like there there's at least a bit of a silver lining there, and that you're getting a quality of customer that maybe, you know, historically would have in a different environment would have gone to a different type of financing option. That's right. I think it's important to keep in mind that you know the Federal Reserve policy is intentional, right? the The desire to raise rates was designed to constrict demand and to constrict credit as one of the levers that is in net impact on demand. And so, you know, I think of it as just a giant cascade where um on the credit side, Yes, you're exactly right. You know, four or five percent higher borrowing costs for the lenders means that you know some consumers that were on the margin no longer get approved. Okay, fine. Those consumers will drop into a program like ours. 
but we're tightening our credit box also. And so our marginal four or five percent on the, you know, on the on the very bottom of our credit box, same impact. And so at the end of the day, some consumers that would have gotten credit or credit like financing uh, a few years ago are unable to do so. And that is the Fed's stated policy. It is the reality of what it means to, you know, on a net basis, constrict credit in the economy. I think the question is, you know, what the impact is on each of the participants in that ecosystem. And it's just, it's different depending on where you sit. Caffeine as a business is well positioned for it. Um, but yes, it is it is a net loss from a utility standpoint in the economy, which is by design. Yeah, I mean, it, it's doing what it's supposed to do, right? Um, I mean, how have you seen this play out as far as caffeine's unit economics? So, I mean, specifically on the cost of customer acquisition and the losses side, like have you seen um, a material shift in, in sort of what what the business looks like as that trade down effect and some of these other, you know, other factors have, have played out? Yeah, I think every business is a little bit different, right? So there's there's three parts that interact for, you know, basically all credit businesses or credit-like businesses. You know, your credit performance kind of determines your revenue margin or your gross margin, your cost structure, which includes your financing cost, will translate to your net income margin. And then the scale at which you operate just turns all those margins into sheer dollars, right? And in 2020, 2021, you had great consumer credit performance, you had really low financing costs, and you had growth that was, uh, you know, demand driven and easy. And so all the, you know, all the pistons in the engine were firing in the right direction, right? Now you could make an argument that there's headwinds to all three, and how companies respond to that, I think, is very specific to the nature of the company themselves, their capitalization, their goals, et cetera. For caffeine, our response is to really focus on driving um, top line credit performance, right? There's not much we can do about our financing cost. It's okay, right? And we've talked about that before. Like it doesn't it doesn't hurt us as much as it hurts some other players, but our our cost structure is what it is. Um, we can control credit performance, but in order to control credit performance, we have to artificially suppress the highest possible growth rate that we would normally otherwise pursue. And so, you know, the caffeine the caffeine model is to not not let customer acquisition costs get out of hand, not let credit uh, performance suffer, but rather to just be more methodical about our growth rate and focus on the highest quality, most positive unit economics growth that we can pursue. I mean, is part of driving those unit economics repeat use of the product? And the reason I ask that, and again, like I always have my my small dollar unsecured hat on, um, but but a key driver of profitability in that sort of small dollar world is repeat usage, right? You pay, you tend to pay quite a bit to acquire that customer up front, and by the time you you bake in the CAC and your portfolio wide losses, you know, generally you. You want or need that person to borrow, you know, three, four, or five times and repay to establish good unit economics and profitability at, at the portfolio level. It, is that how caffeine works, or or is the structure just fundamentally different given the types of of you know products uh, your your consumers are using it to finance? Yeah, I think there are structural differences, but it's less about the product type and more about the distribution model. Mm -hmm. Given that we are B2B to C distributed, 
there isn't a ton of repeat customer usage. And so our repeat customer rate is, you know, order of magnitude, call it 10%. And we're still scaling and we're still relatively small. And so I think at destination, you know, when we're fully scaled, that number might be closer to 20 or 25%, but it's not really going to be higher than that within our B2B2C distribution model. The reality is consumers will come across caffeine um, in this distribution model, wherever they're shopping. And if caffeine mm -hmm. is offered where they're shopping, they'll use caffeine. And if caffeine isn't offered, they might go with one of our competitors. And so it's important for us then to tie it back to unit economics to assume that we are in a single transaction business. Mm -hmm. And our mm -hmm. business economics essentially don't require any repeat utilization. Repeat utilization for us is a sweetener. And, you know, as I said, about 10% of our consumers. And so it's not, not a significant source of um, excess margin. But, you know, that being said, we do really care about repeat consumers because it is a signal to us that we're doing a good job, right? We, we acknowledge that our consumers have other alternatives. And so the fact that they come back to us makes us uh, think about why, what were the, you know, when we, and we interview them and we talk to them, what, what were the elements of the program that caused them to come back? And we also do try to move them into higher amounts. So they have, you know, greater purchasing power with lower pricing. And so every repeat consumer comes back, they get a little bit, uh, they get slightly better terms on, on each transaction. That definitely makes sense. I mean, 10%, uh, to me, sounds quite low in, in the world I came from, I think you were looking at like 80 plus percent of people who did not default would come back and borrow again. And, and that, you know, very much feeds into the narrative around debt traps and, and sort of like exploitative product structures. Um, that said, there has been some scrutiny in the wider space that you play in the lease to own space uh, with the CFPB doing a couple of enforcement actions against other companies in the space. Um, and just sort of like more broadly, there's been an array of guidance and potential rulemaking in areas that could touch on your business, whether it's using AI for credit underwriting, you know, expanding the definition of what a consumer reporting agency is, or uh, the move to remove medical debt from the credit bureaus, you know, 1033 open banking. And none of these are maybe core to your business, but have the potential to change the, the ecosystem that your customers or potential customers are, you know, are shopping in. Are there any key regulatory developments or risks that you're specifically keeping an eye on? Yeah, I'll comment on two of them. Um, you know, the CFPB actions against some of the participants uh, in our space and in adjacent spaces, I'm a little bit hesitant to comment on specifically because they're company specific and and we don't have deep insight into you know what practices uh, are are correct or incorrect with respect to how our how our competitors operate. That being said, the spirit of transparency and fairness and disclosure that I think the CFPB is after with with the with the intent behind its actions, you know, we're fully in support of. And so, you know, whether it is regulatory action or whether it's market forces that drive greater transparency across financial products, especially as they relate to financing products, we're wholly in favor of. I think it's a good thing. I think being able to explain to consumers what they're really getting is is super important. And so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, we are, I think, actively engaged in being a participant towards a greater wave of transparency. The AI elements that have been raised recently are really interesting and I think a lot trickier. Uh, you know, we use we use artificial intelligence in our credit scoring. 
you would have a really tough time convincing me that it doesn't add significant value to our ability to understand the risk. And I think people often say, well, um, you can't disclose to customers why they're getting declined because you don't understand. And that's not accurate, right? And so I just want to I want to take a minute to explain what's really happening. Yeah, please. The, the, the idea is that consumers should be able to understand why they get declined from credit if they get declined so that they understand where in the universe this data is coming from that says, hey, I'm not a great credit. That way they have a chance to repair it. They can think about, you know, correcting errors. They can think about, you know, driving behavior down the road that may get them more uh, actively engaged in the credit ecosystem. The challenge with AI models is that, um, you know, without getting overly mathematical, there are multiple factors that may or may not be at play in any given time. And so it is very rare that you will end up getting declined in an AI model because of something like a hard knockout. So in the to, to give an example, 15 years ago, there might be something like, okay, if your debt to income ratio is over X, you are ineligible. In an AI model, you're very rarely going to have a single factor like that determine your approval or decline. And so if you were to give the consumer details about you know, the 25 different factors that went into their decision, they would probably be unable to digest it. And in being unable to digest it, it would become almost useless because every consumer would have, a, you know, a, 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 you know, dozens of reasons. If there's dozens of reasons, you might as well provide, you know, a limited number and so, or, or nothing at all. And so I, I think we're going to have to see how people respond to this. This 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 guidance is relatively new. It's only been a couple of weeks, and um, we're all gonna you know we're all gonna have to struggle to think about how to communicate the most important elements back to consumers so that they do have a chance to really understand and correct you know whatever whatever is causing underlying decline activity, compared with just overwhelming them with with things that they you know may not be able to understand. And you know same same thing with regulators. So. There's a tension that we're going to have to jointly work through, and it'll be an opportunity for everyone to, you know, hopefully come together to craft something that makes sense. Yeah, as as somebody who's looked at uh, more than my sh fair share of notices of adverse action over <laughs> over my career, it, it's on the one hand, it's like yes, this is fulfilling, um, you know, obviously a legal requirement under ECOA and FICRA. Um, you know, to your point, uh, you know how how intelligible or actionable is even the best notice of adverse action to a typical consumer. I guess it depends on their ability to understand like the information that's presented and, and, you know, understand how that correlates with, you know, what their behavior or what their credit history has been. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, when it comes to AI, you know, in, in multiple lenders that I've worked for have used some type of AI, which I, I would add the context that AI tends to encompass multiple different approaches or multiple different kinds of models that may have different complications in, in doing what, what you're saying, which is produce you know, a specific or a list of variables or features in the model that cause, cause the outcome. Um, but on the flip side, you know, there's also opportunity. And I think you know, there's a certain sentiment sometimes out of the regulatory establishment that like anything that is new, you know, there's sort of an inherent skepticism, whether it's alt data, whether it's AI, and there are there are real 
opportunities to expand access or to improve pricing. And those need to be balanced with you know, existing statutory and regulatory requirements, transparency, consumer protection, um, you know, all of which, you know, I think you you spoke to uh quite eloquently. I mean, one one bit on the on the transparency side when it comes to sort of like pricing or product structure. You know, it, it is interesting to think about this sort of like proliferation of products that has been created in the past handful of years, you know, whether it's, you know, BNPL where there's, you know, ostensibly 0% APR, but maybe there's late fees or cash advance products where maybe it's free, but there's expedited funding fees. And, you know, I can see why, uh, and I've, you know, personally taken a point of view on some of these product structures, I can see why there would be cause for concern in some pockets of innovation or some pockets of fintech, where maybe the, you know, the goal of transparency, um, you know, companies are maybe falling a bit short in some of these places, you know, that said, you know, consumer, uh, consumer credit is a very wide world, and you have people across the spectrum, some, you know, really like executing very well as far as consumer protection, disclosure, transparency, others that maybe are executing not nearly as well. So it'll be interesting to see how how regulators, you know, continue to sort of respond to that over over time. Yeah, I, I would say that um I, I tend to see sort of two categories of transparency failure, right? And the first category is um People don't tell their consumers what they're getting into because they don't really want them to know. And you know, why would you not want them to know? Well, maybe you're just greedy, okay? Or maybe you're, maybe you would be sacrificing additional uh, volume if if consumers really knew what they were getting into. And that that category, I'm not super sympathetic to. I mean, I think you know we should have um, boundaries around. Uh, the way we operate, and to the extent that regulatory agencies are the enforcement mechanism or market forces, either one, you know, doesn't really matter to me. The second category of transparency failure, though, I think is a little more nuanced, and that is, what are the reasons or rules that are causing people to do this, right? And sometimes, you know, things like APR caps, okay, um, APR caps create distortion if you if you've got a, a lender that is in a 36% APR regime and cost of financing rises by 5% and uh could you know charge-offs increase by 2 or 3% you're not giving that company many levers and so you're starting to see a lot of these companies try to offer subscription programs and you know deposit programs and they, you know they're, they're basically trying to they're basically trying to get around APR caps in some way, shape, or form because they, they can't just raise prices. And that, you know, I would say, look, I understand a lot more that um, you know, perhaps the regulators need to maybe just rethink the, you know, the rules that they've put in place that are leading to these types of behaviors to to kind of get upstream. I uh I do not disagree. Um but one or two last questions. So with the additional funding that you've secured, what's on the roadmap as you head into 2024? Yeah, our roadmap is is pretty simple, right? It's got three prongs to it. Um, the first prong is to continue to increase profitability. And you know, to help execute that, we actually created an analytics department recently. We are staffing up there pretty significantly. And that, that department is wholly focused on um, all levers that contribute to profitability. The second 
you know, sort of prong here is to just grow responsibly. We hired a new chief revenue officer. We hired a head of partnerships. We're at the scale now where we can start to meaningfully engage, you know, medium and larger enterprise clients and take on larger distribution partnerships. And so we're going to continue to do that. The final prong is to just really take care of our consumers. You know, as I sort of alluded to, I think times are going to be a little tougher over the next 12 months. And we've invested significantly in our servicing centers to be prepared to um, walk consumers through their options and and help execute the you know best outcome for them, um, I would say you know at a high level, you know even in the last year and when we, when we spoke, you know caffeine hasn't been focused on sexy stuff, right? I think we are um, a blocking and tackling kind of company that is trying to make you know increases and impact through fundamentals execution. And we continue to run that game plan. Um, it's, it's it's who we are, and um, you know maybe someday uh, fundamentals will come back into fashion. And you know we're here when it does, <laughs> so or when they do. So uh, yeah, we're just we're just sticking to the game plan we've always had from day one. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, f- focusing on profitability and fundamentals is is the right recipe for the climate, or really for any climate, but particularly for the uh, the climate we're in right now, Neil. Congrats again. Really appreciate you taking the time to share the fundraise news with us. For listeners who want to learn more about caffeine, apply for those analytics jobs uh, and keep up on the latest, where can they find you? Yeah, I would say the two best places are our website, you know, which is caffeine.com and then our LinkedIn page, which you can find, you know, if you just search for caffeine. Um, we tend to post most of our activity in 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 those two channels. So um I would uh I would say that I had a blast doing this conversation it's you know it's, it's great to reconnect after a year and i really appreciate it and looking forward to the next one all right thank you neil thank you